Hello, this is First Contact Gamer, and welcome back. Thanks for following along with us. This is episode two of season one, and today we are going to be providing an overview for OCS 101. Uh, this will mostly be for listeners who may be new to the series and want to learn a little more before diving all the way in. The episode structure, real quick, I want to get out of the way and mention I'm going to try to keep this as consistent as possible, but please understand as this is early on in our production of the series, this might change a little, but we'll go through roughly the following order uh, for all the episodes. Start with news or announcements if any exist, then go on to what I have on the table, uh, things that are new to the library uh, for myself, and then items that I might have on the way that I'm particularly excited about. Then we're going to go into mostly the show content, so the meat and potatoes of the episode. Then I want to do a small little list every episode to just highlight uh, for various things, kind of a ranking of a top 10, top 3, etc. Keep those rather short, but a little interesting and somehow related back usually to the topics at hand. Then we'll mention what the next episode subject's going to be and give a little teaser there. And then lastly, if we have any shout-outs, mailbags, questions that came up, we'll try to address them at the very end of the episode. So to dive right on in, there's no news or announcements uh, this particular episode, so we'll go on to On the Table. And for me at the moment, I've got really three games that are actively being played on the table. The first is I've got a game of Day of Days, which is a standard combat series simulation of the invasion of Normandy, uh, D-Day. And that is a, a rather large uh, monster game using the standard combat series. It's a total of four maps uh, spread out across the table. It's quite the sight and lots of counters. Currently playing through that in person with a friend. We're on turn two. Actually, we might be on turn three at this point. And, and that's been really enjoyable. It is a little tedious with counter density, especially uh, as he is playing the allies and the density on those beaches themselves can be a little intense. Uh, we also have heard from others that have already gone through and played the full campaign scenario that there'll be a similar feeling as we start to get to the bocage that's a little further inland where really the troops start to get hung up and you have large stacks that you're managing through across the entire front. But Day of Days, published by MMP, part of the standard combat series, have really enjoyed that so far, and it's certainly one of those monster games that's a beautiful sight to behold. Uh, so that's ongoing for me, and will probably, frankly, be up for months uh, for us to fully finish the, the entire game, so I'm not going to mention it every episode unless there's maybe a particular update. The second thing that's been on the table is actually playing some Churchill uh, with two friends in person. Uh, we have a game right now that we unfortunately had to stop right as we were getting towards the end of it, hoping to have that finished up this next weekend. And following that, we might play another uh, game or two of that before maybe looking at uh, Triumph and Tragedy uh, later on. But Churchill, uh, designed by Mark Herman, published by GMT, is a fantastic three-person game. Uh, a little bit, I don't want to say casual, um, but it's not something that you have to invest uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours into to successfully complete. And very intriguing as you look through the dynamics of a three-person simulation on the board as opposed to so many games that we may find ourselves doing are more one-on-one. -on -one. And then lastly on the table that I'm really heavily engaged with right now is my own solitaire um, playing of Smolensk. 
Now, Smolensk, I have chosen to be my rather intro OCS game as I start to learn the system. As everyone listening to this podcast should probably know, this right now is chronically my journey for season one, learning the OCS system. And Smolensk is what I'm focusing my efforts on through some recommendations of others uh, that have suggested is a great kind of starter to the series. It also is a smaller footprint, which makes it very nice. We'll get into some of those details in a later episode as well. But I've been playing through, I've done numerous uh, iterations of the introductory scenario, um, which is Vitipsk, which is just a one turn. You're playing as the Axis, you've got some objectives to try to, to capture, and you just have to see how efficiently can you capture those objectives. So I've done that a few times. And right now I'm actually uh, going through the playthrough of the second scenario in the game, which is the full map and the full uh, density of counters. However, it's a more limited time frame. It's just eight turns as opposed to, I think the full campaign is 17 turns, I wanna say. So this is just a little shortened. It has then some different victory conditions. It also takes out some of the complexity that you have when you're playing as the Axis where they have forces that start to retreat as they started to be sent towards the other army groups to assist them. Uh, so there's a lot less of navigating all of the logistical complexities of the Axis having really entire groups of units coming off the board all of a sudden, scrambling to defend the positions that you've taken. And then for the Soviets, certainly then this in mass counterattack that begins via a long buildup. Um, so the, the second scenario is seen as just the, the full campaign, however, shortened and condensed down to make it a little bit more manageable. I have been loving every every moment that I've been spending as part of this game, and I'm really excited to continue to share more tidbits from it as I keep going through and in some future episodes where we might do a little bit more of a deep dive into the particular uh, game and campaigns itself. But that's what's been on the table for me. Uh, new to the library, I've actually got, due to the holiday season mostly, three titles that are new additions to the library. The first that I'll start with is actually Ericourt from MMP. Uh, this is part of the Battalion Combat series, BCS. Uh, this is seen as a game that has a lot of similarities with uh, Operational Combat series. Excuse me, the series shares similarities with OCS. And I'm looking forward to, uh, at some point after my OCS travels, looking into BCS and really taking a dive into it. But Aircourt focuses in the Western theater during World War II, in, in France particularly, some of the more mobile engagements that were going on between the Allies and the Axis there. And I'm, I'm just excited to dive into that. A little bit more manageable in size as well. It's a one-mapper, so I'm hoping it's a good intro for myself to learn a little bit more about the system eventually. The other two games are actually both published by Avalanche Press and are a little bit of a detour from the MMP content that we're going to have so heavily in this episode and future episodes. And the first is Great War at Sea, Jutland, which is a naval combat game. And the Jutland game in the series, because this is a series of games that Avalanche Press has, has come out with, the Jutland game particularly does focus in more of the uh, North Atlantic and, of course, the Jutland battle, which is so infamous from that war. It focuses around those engagements, some hypothetical engagements. I believe it's around 300 unique ships that are represented in the counters that you can have through various um, conflicts and scenarios that come with the game. So really in-depth, really enjoyable. And then I also 
got a copy of Great War at Sea, uh, Mediterranean, uh, which I actually already had a copy of, but this is a different edition of it. It was a, a re-release, I believe. So just some updates to it. And it follows the same series, World War I um, naval combat, except focusing on conflicts and battles that happen in the Mediterranean theater, as well as, of course, some hypotheticals, as there were a, a number of you know, what ifs, especially early on in the war from a naval perspective that this tries to simulate through. What if the commander had continued the pursuit, etc., and how would the battle have played out? But anyways, those, those are added to the library. Very excited about all three of them and hoping that in, you know, future seasons we can maybe touch on those two series. But for now, we'll keep the content focused on OCS, which then is a natural transition to uh, games that I have on the way. So recently placed an order for OCS Korea, The Forgotten War. I'll be honest with you, I've been trying to hold back from just going into collector mode on every game I possibly can in the OCS series. But after spending so much time over this holiday season with Smolensk in these last couple weeks, I felt the urge and, and caved a little there to pick up OCS Korea, which I've heard wonderful things about, obviously chronicling using the same system the Korean War um, between North and South Korea and the involvement from UN forces as well as uh, Chinese and Soviet forces. So that is on its way, and I look forward to highlighting that a little more in future episodes as well as we go through some OCS content. With that, let's jump into the meat and potatoes of the episode, and this is to give a little bit of a primer of what is this OCS that I keep mentioning. So OCS stands for Operational Combat Series, uh, but we're just going to keep saying OCS because it's much simpler. And at the time of this episode's recording, it's actually gone through now 30 years as a game series. So it's something that's really been established for a while. This isn't a new and upcoming series. This isn't a series with a lot of, I'd say, variation. It It's a series that has had a lot of stability and foundation and thought put into it. So when you when you go into it, and I've already witnessed this so far myself in my early explorations of the series, is it feels solid. It feels well thought out. You're you're not reading through a rule book and going, well that that feels a little off. Or you're not sitting there going, well I can really game the situation by doing this. It just it it feels so polished. And polished is probably a word you'll hear me say more throughout the episode. And I think that polish really does come from the fact that after 30 years of development and feedback and iterations, it really does have a lot of the kinks worked out of it. Um, and it shows in the work. And, and it was started by Mr. Dean Essig back in 1992 with his first publication of Guderian's Blitzkrieg. And that was chronicling, you know, the operations in the first two years of the Eastern Front in World War II. A lot of the OCS games do focus in that theater, but that was the first game, Guderian's Blitzkrieg. And in total, the series has had 17 unique titles. And that game count actually increases when you start to look at reprints or second editions that the publishers and designers have done with the series. So, for example, you, you had Tunisia and then you had Tunisia 2 right, where Tunisia 2 is, for the most part, using the same map, same counters, but it has updates to the rules. I think there was errata fixed, right, but for the most part, it's a very, very similar, if not you could just say the same game. Um, you, you have a similar situation with DAC and DAC 2, and 
overall, it's it's got more than just 17 titles if you were to go out there looking at different products you could buy, but really 17 unique uh, editions of the games are out there. And they're all published by Multiman Publishing, MMP, which I'll continue to reference. And if you go and look at their website today, they do have a number in stock. There's The Third Winter there, Hungarian Rhapsody, uh, Korea, Beyond the Rhine, I think are the four that are currently in stock. Uh, so if you want to just go direct to the publisher and not worry about the secondhand market, there are certainly good titles in the series that are very much available on the website still in stock for you to buy direct, new, and shrink. And in a later episode, we'll actually dive into more specifically each of the games, what makes each unique, a little bit of background about the game, etc., uh, so please stay tuned for that if you want to learn a little bit more about particulars of different games within the series. As the name implies, all of the games in the series are focused on war game simulations at an operational level. So we're not talking tactical ASL level here. We're also not talking something strategic where you have one or two hexes representing an entire country, right? This is at an operational level. The average, you know, counter combat size it's most commonly, from what I've seen at least so far, a regiment through a division. However, it, it could technically, through the series rules, be from a company up to a division. But mostly I've been seeing, at least in my experience so far, a regimental and a division level uh, somewhere in there in terms of the size of each of the combat counters. And I, I know that varies a little bit by the game that you're playing in the series too. And within, when we're still talking about scale, within the game's each turn usually represents three and a half days, so two turns equaling a week. Although there is some variation there, it's a pretty consistent theme that you've got about three and a half days. And I really think that it, it feels like a little bit of a weird number to say three and a half days for each turn. Thinking about it, two turns is a week, though. I do think that time scale, they've done a really good job of honing in on that. And I, I think it shows in the gameplay that that's a very realistic feel to the actions you're taking, what's moving on the map, distances, etc. It just feels right. So I, I commend them on that. The The focus of the series usually is on World War II for most of the games. However, there are exceptions to that because the series does work beyond that. An example, of course, OCS Korea, the Forgotten War, covering the Korean War. And there, there are kind of outliers. A lot of them are usually in Europe, specifically Eastern theater. But of course, there's Western theater as well as the North Africa campaigns. You also even have some glimpses into the Pacific theater with Burma, which covers a little small slice of that conflict in the Pacific. But overall, World War II series for the most part, a lot of the content in the Eastern theater, but you, you have really good representation from the Mediterranean to the Western Front in North Africa as well. When we're talking about, you know, if there's a single thing that really makes the series stand out, it by far has to be supply in my mind. It is by far one of the most unique and rewarding parts of the system from my perspective. For units to engage in combat or move, they do actually have to manage through supply points that are a resource on the map that you're managing. And for newcomers to the series, I think a common critique that you might hear is that that supply feels very... Cumbersome, I, I think, is a probably common emotion if you're coming into it and you're not prepared for that. And there, there is some fair criticism there with some of the mechanics of the supply, I think. However, 
the the core concept that I think is so important about the game, and I think the designers do a good job with trying to address this through future games, future rules, revisions, etc., is this whole concept that you love to see in good games of I want to do these 23 different things. However, I find myself in a position where I can only do five. And how how in the world do I prioritize to do the five most important things and still at the end of the day, finish my turn with some semblance of strategy and tactics behind my decision-making. And the supply perspective of the game, I think is just what makes it so unique and what's really drawn me to it. I haven't seen something like this to the level that it's done in OCS. I have not seen in other games or other game series. I would even argue that if you dive into the the PC realm and if you do start to look at some of those Gary Greeksby or those larger simulations of things, I even think this does a little bit of a better job than a computer handling all these simulations in really trying to pressure you, the player, to the best of your ability managing this supply constraint that you have. It's not abstract. The, the supply very much does exist on the map. You see where it is. You see how you have to move that supply. You see how the supply is traced to units from different locations. It's all very visible to you, and I think that's where some of the critiques of cumbersome might come into play. However, it, it's very well done in my mind, and supply is a topic that we might have an entire episode on by itself because I think it's so important to the entire series. And in my gameplay experience so far, I think has been my favorite part about OCS. There's a lot of Chrome in these games. The topics, of course, are some of the most popular in the Hex Encounter Wargaming space. It's a very consistent design, et cetera, et cetera. All these great things going for the series, but I think supply is probably one of the most unique parts of it that I've enjoyed thus far. Another call out that I'd really like to make about the series that I've noticed is just how appealing the maps and the counters and, and the art is. It, it might sound like a small thing, but when you're looking at really investing to learn a system like OCS and to follow along through such a long library of games that exist in it, you really don't want to make that investment of time if you're not looking at something that's not visually appealing or, or doesn't appear accurate, etc. And the, the maps, I think, are, are very well done. I think it's probably a little nod to the the history of Dean Essig, the original designer who's still involved in the series, of course. Uh, and his background is actually being a professional cartographer. Uh, so the the man knows what it's like to, to make a map, and that's seen even the very first publications of the games of just very well-done maps, and it really shows through in the final product. And it's something that I've appreciated while diving into the system. When we're talking about the community, it is a pretty established and active community as well. The Facebook groups have something around 2,000 users, I think, that are active in it is what the honchos have called out. So, I mean, it's a pretty engaged community. There's also discords available, etc. But it's actually led by what are termed honchos, and there are currently two honchos for the OCS series. And that's Curtis Bear and Chip Saltzman. And I, if I mispronounced any names there, I apologize. But those two individuals are what they're referred to as the OCS honchos. And they're, I, I think it's wonderful that they've kind of set up this organizational structure for the game series. But they're there to, as I see it, kind of be the the editors or the project managers or the planners, if you will, right, of the, the series and how it's developing. So, you know, 
fixing any errata that might come up, working with different designers as the developers and games write to make sure that they stay consistent to the series, to the game mechanics, etc., and really organizing play tests, feedback loops, working with publisher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, this whole haunt show system they have, I think is a wonderful kind of design philosophy on the back end that they have to manage the series and its releases. So I just want to say kudos to, to Curtis Bear and Chip Saltzman as their work and dedication to this, along with all the other volunteers, really shows through to me as a new player and a new entrant to their system and trying to learn a little bit more about it. It's been very helpful. And one of the resources that I would really highly recommend to everyone is actually a website called OCS Depot. And I, I believe the full URL is just OCS Depot. And with that, they actually have a collection, not only of all the games in this series, but also PDFs and reference materials for each and every game. Uh, so for some in particular, you may even find you know, a dedicated kind of visual PDF walkthrough of, hey, here's one of the haunt shows or here's an expert in the game showing you how this scenario, maybe the whole scenario or maybe a couple turns of the scenario, here's how it could play out and here's how the rules interact and here's why I made these decisions. And it's so illustrative and it's so helpful to learning the system. Uh, OCS Depot, can't recommend it enough. It's where you can find pretty much any material that you need for the game's that even might live outside of the boxes when you purchase the game. So recommend you check them out. Again, social media, they have a very large presence where you can find them, Facebook, Twitter, Discord, etc. A fantastic community that's really helped as I try to learn the, the system and the games and very, very thankful that that's there. When you're thinking about which OCS game might be a good entry uh, to learn the series and the mechanics, there's a couple that will most often be recommended. I don't necessarily know that there's a wrong answer with some of these suggestions. I think they would probably all suffice, but the most common are usually Smolensk, uh, Barbarossa Derailed, Reluctant Enemies, or Tunisia 2, are probably the three that I hear most commonly thrown around as good introductions to the series. Again, no right or wrong, I don't think, with this. Others might shout Sicily, uh, I know is a good one that's out there too. But when you're looking at them, I'd suggest that you probably steer towards something that has a smaller footprint because certainly size and scale can seem a little daunting when you're trying to learn a more complicated game system. And I, I would pass this advice even beyond just OCS when you're looking at more complex series of games to try to find an entry point that you can fit onto a regular size table, right? That you don't have to walk around to reach to different counters, etc. That makes it a more enjoyable learning experience, I think. And Smolensk in particular uh, has the Vitebsk scenario, which I think, I'm, actually I know I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. It's a one-turn scenario simulating just the very first turn really of one portion of the campaign map. Can you capture objectives using as minimal resources as possible, as efficiently as you can? And then another one that's been coming up lately, I've been seeing as recommendations, I wouldn't necessarily recommend just the game itself as your introduction to the series, but The Third Winter, which is the most recent publication in the series covering the second half of the Eastern Front, mostly in the Ukraine uh, theater of operations, they have a scenario in there called Scorpions in a Bottle, and it's almost by itself a standalone uh, scenario. It's very small. It's a one-pager. 
And I think that also could serve as a good introduction scenario if you're looking to find something that's in print, easily accessible. And then it also comes with a fantastic game as well. Uh, and that's Scorpions in a Bottle scenario from the third winter as more of a little introductory scenario that might be good to learn the system on. The rule set to jump back to that real quick, as mentioned, polish, polish, can't say that enough. They're on version 4.3 of the rules. They come out to about 60 pages for the series rules. So it it is something that's a little hefty uh, to, to read through. But I'd say that when reading through it, it went by more quickly than I would have thought. My own personality type, I, I want to sit down and I want to read the series rules before I necessarily start moving counters around. I know that's not the preference of everyone. Others might certainly recommend as well that you do sit down and push counters around well reading through the rules. I, th- I think both can work for different um, people. But the, the rules themselves I found quite easy to read through. And when I did finally sit down to push around some counters, go through the sequence of play, I, I found that I had a pretty good understanding just from going through the rule book. And I I think that the rules are, are well written. There's very minimal errata when you're looking at different game-specific rules as well. They are currently you know, kind of working through a 4.4 rules edition. That's not going to have any major changes. There's just a little bit of errata to be addressed. They're converting the document to a color publication, which will have more detailed illustrations and examples. And a, a quick note on that too, for, for more of, of the recent publications of games, the game-specific rules, which will always come with an OCS title, those from what I've noticed in my collection so far, the, the newer titles do have that color publication. And you can kind of tell the difference in you know how easy it is to, to pick up on different things they're highlighting in an illustration of, hey, here, here is how Zone of Control works, et cetera. Here's this reference card for you in the rules. Um, that color, just a little bit of extra effort into the, the visual of it, I think helps uh, a lot when you're trying to learn things. And while they're going through 4.4, there's also talk of, you know, what might a version 5.0 of the rule sets look like? I don't think there's really been any announcements in this area of when to expect it, but I think it's something that the hunt shows and some of the designers in the series are currently thinking about is what does 5.0 look like? And in last year's State of the System update that they published, they did say that 5.0 would probably have, you know, three topics that they would like to try to address. And I mean, this is more than just, hey, we're going to fix a rod or make something look a little more visually appealing. And that is first higher level headquarters. And this is a concept that they've started to play around with in Hungarian Rhapsody in the third winter, something that is in the two of the newer games that are out there and available right now, where really the level of headquarters and organizationally how those were represented in these conflicts doesn't always match up to the same, I don't know, right way to say this, maybe scale as might actually have happened uh, during these conflicts. So I, I think it's a good thing for them to try to address, especially you know from a Soviet perspective. They didn't have this command structure that really followed exactly the same as the access command structure. So they're trying to look at how that better fits into the series rules, I think. And I think it's a worthy endeavor as there, there's probably opportunity there. And that might also help alleviate some of the 
more cumbersome points that a newcomer to the series might feel around supply and organization of forces, etc. So I, I think that will be an interesting topic to see how they cover that in the future. The second is fog of war. This is just a general theme that they've spoken about where there's probably opportunity to say, how do we better represent fog of war? There are fog of war rules within the series. Uh, to put it most simply, you know, your your opponent can't look beyond the, the top counter that you have in any given stack. That's not uncommon to other board games either. Um, there's some intricacies to that rule, but that's fog of war mostly as it exists today in the series. I think they want to look at it just a little bit more. And it, it would be interesting to see how they do that because of course, unless you're doing some type of double blind setup or or you convert to blocks, right? Fog of war is something that's always challenged, specifically hex encounter war games, because your opponent does get to see right where you have concentrations of forces, where you might be ready to launch an attack, etc. So I'm excited to see what might come from those fog of war decisions that they have. And then lastly, this is, from my understanding, kind of the longest and largest debate that's existed in the OCS community over the years. And that revolves around artillery and, in more broadly speaking, barrages. This is something they would like to take a look at, see where there's opportunity to maybe make some adjustments to the system. For artillery, the, the criticisms and kind of the holy wars that might be fought between two bodies within the community. And as someone who is just learning this, please don't, don't think I'm taking sides on any of this because I do not understand well enough the complexities of the issue at hand to, to weigh in uh, by any perspective. But my understanding of the conversation is that folks will often not use artillery in historical methods of, of how artillery probably was historically used in these conflicts due to the cost benefit analysis of what supply artillery takes when compared to other barrages, say from air barrages from bombers, for example. And that then leads to artillery being used in a historical situation, such as to scout a crossroads or, or something of that like, because a player might look at it and go, well, the supply cost to actually use the artillery just doesn't feel justified to me. So I'm, I'm going to use it to go do this other ahistorical purpose that it probably was never designed for. I will say again, I, I don't, I'm not trying to take a side on this debate because I know I'm not educated enough to have an informed opinion on it. From my initial steps into um, playing OCS and where I'm at right now in the Smolensk game itself, I have not witnessed that, I have to say. I, I don't know if it's specific to the scenario or just because it, it could very well be as I'm not finished with the scenario. Maybe maybe by the end of it, I'm going to sit there going, well, I used way too much supply early on doing artillery barrages. But, but so far, I have not seen that play out in my own experiences. Um, but I certainly know this is a heated topic amongst the community. And what I've seen from podcasts, interviews with designers and the honchos, et cetera, it certainly is something that they, it, it seems like they respect the sensitivity and what needs to be addressed with it potentially. And they are looking at ways they can try to do that. So those are the three things they'd really be looking at in some type of 5.0 version of the rules in the future. Talking of future and kind of what's next for OCS, just to give a little glimpse as well for new games that are coming out or in design. Um, the, the four titles that I want to talk to that are rather, from my understanding, 
through their publication of news updates are, are long in the process. And you might expect and say the, the next years are, are four titles. The, the first is cross-channel attack. And this is being designed by Roland LeBlanc. And cross-channel attack is an OCS interpretation of, you know, the invasion of Normandy, the opening of the second front in Europe, and what that conflict evolves into. My understanding is they hope that this cross-channel attack game will actually be able to also have scenarios overlap with Beyond the Rhine, potentially. Uh, so I have heard rumor that they might look at a second edition of Beyond the Rhine to make it more easy to overlay the maps of Beyond the Rhine, which covers you know the, the Western theater in Europe with cross-channel attacks. So you could kind of combine them. And for, for those of us that are interested in this hobby, some of the most appealing thoughts are always, wow, what could I put out there that has eight maps and 5,000 counters and feels like Churchill's war room, right? That, that is an appealing thought to see if they can manage to pull that off. But cross-channel attack, I understand, is rather along in playtesting. They've published what the map looks like. They've published some glimpses of you know playthroughs and what it's all shaping up to be. So I think that's a, a little along. However, it's not even up for a pre-order yet. So I wouldn't necessarily expect this in, say, the coming months. But I do think this is likely to be the next OCS title that is released in this series. So really looking forward to seeing how that comes along. And I think the whole concept of another Western theater game that can also accompany Beyond the Rhine would, would be really appealing to kind of look at more of a holistic Western European theater. The next one that's under design right now by Tony Burkett, and Tony has been doing a number of games here, and he was actually the designer of The Third Winter, which is at moment of recording the most recent release in the series covering the later part of the war in the Eastern theater in Ukraine. Tony is designing uh, the Forgotten Battles, which is meant to represent Army Group Center, whereas the Third Winter is representing really Army Group South. Uh, so this would sit just above or north of those maps. And Tony is actually working and leading an effort to create uh, a series, the series of games that can all be put together into this incredible representation of the entire Eastern theater uh, called Ostfront. So the theory is that four games would all fit together and actually represent the entire Eastern theater from 43 through 44, I want to say it is. So that would be stretching down from Crimea all the way to the north end of the theater up by Finland. So that that's pretty appealing. That's currently going through playtesting as well, I believe. And Tony's also involved in the next title here, Crimea. And Tony is working on this in conjunction with Guy Wilde. So this game is actually going to have two designers, is my understanding. And Tony's responsible for working on the portion of the game that will represent kind of 1943-1944, again, tying into his Ostfront effort. Whereas Guy Wilde has been working on a representation of you know, the initial invasion of Crimea by the Axis in 41-42 and how all of that played out. So the game itself, to my understanding, will actually be, you know, one set of maps representing Crimea and that area of operations. However, have scenarios ranging all the way from 41 to 44, which I find fascinating. I, I think that's really cool to have in a game where you can kind of reuse the geography, but really get more than just one game's bang from it. So I, I think that's an exciting prospect that's being worked on. 
And then lastly, what really seems to be coming along in development is a game called Luzon. And this is designed by Matsuro Yutaka. My apologies with any pronunciation there. And this is designed to be a little bit of a half map introductory game of the invasion of the Philippines. I don't know if it's 100% the intent of the designer MMP that like this is the go-to on how to learn OCS in the future, but it does seem like it's going to be a fantastic game to learn the series on. It is, again, a smaller footprint. It does seem like it will have a lot of the newer rule updates and nice reference cards, etc. And it's really seems to have been getting a lot of great positive feedback uh, through testing. So excited to see how that comes along. And, and those are the four games that are really coming up in development and we can expect in the near-ish future in terms of what the next couple years look like in terms of game development for the series. All very exciting stuff. If you want to learn more on OCS Depot, you can actually find some materials, specifically their annual kind of update of the series uh, that does talk in more depth about each of these games, as well as speaks to other titles that are somewhere in the development pipeline. I mean, these games take a very long time to design. So there are efforts to, to design even beyond these four products in the series. So that's currently ongoing. And now we get to the later parts of the episode where we start talking about lists. And for this episode, I actually wanted to start with just my top three books that cover World War II on the Eastern Front. This is not all-inclusive. There are so many great titles out there. I'm not trying to, to leave any out, but I think these would probably be my three favorites that I've read in the past, and I think they give great perspective when you're going through and playing some of these war games in the Eastern theater. So I would recommend these three titles to anyone who's kind of looking for some background material on the conflicts in this theater. would also say that you know some of these you can even find I think it was two of these I even found in the OCS Smolensk's designers um, books to reference that they were also kind of reading through as they were studying the subject matter, etc. So you, you also find then I think some tie-ins to the scenarios and decision-making, etc. So number three for me would be Absolute War, Soviet Russia in the Second World War, and this is by Chris Bellemi. So this is a Soviet perspective on the conflict. I found it to be incredibly well-researched. I really appreciated as well Chris's approach, and, and this is more so my own personality probably too bleeding into this, but it really takes sometimes a quantitative approach to really emphasize scale of conflict, impacts that the conflict had, etc. cetera. I, I think he does a very good job at painting that picture because when you talk about this theater and the war from the Soviet perspective, Numbers are just a staggering thing to really consider uh, if you're newer to the subject matter. I think Chris does a great job with that. Another interesting tidbit, not necessarily related to this title, but I want to call out, you can sometimes find it harder to find these publications and productions from a Soviet perspective. And an interesting reason why is that from a Russian Federation perspective, uh, specifically from Putin himself, they have actually imposed over the years more restrictions on what documentation is actually available to historians and novelists trying to write about the conflict in World War II and other parts of the Soviet or Russian history. So that makes it much harder for historians to actually get the source material they need to write from the more Soviet or Russian perspective during these conflicts. 
And it's why it can sometimes be a little harder to find books covering this topic from their perspective. But I, I think out of those that I have seen, um, Chris's work with Absolute War really does a great job of covering the topic. The next book, number two on the list, is War on the Eastern Front by James Lucas. Now, this one I would probably describe as more of a tactical book. And what I find really fascinating about it is I, I'm a little bit of a, a you know interest in trying to learn about the hardware of the conflict and such like that. So, of course, the armored vehicles and their tactics are intriguing to me as well as, you know, other considerations. But in James Lucas's book, War on the Eastern Front, I found he did a wonderful job of kind of representing, you know, this new evolving role of armor. Because at the beginning of the conflict, especially from the Axis perspective, really the panzer groups and the armored elements of these formations in the Western theater, they were the blitzkrieg encircle the enemy, break through enemy lines, infantry will follow up behind, etc. That lightning quick advance of forces and really fighting against infantry was a common theme that they had. However, on the Eastern front, what they really started to experience was armored formations fighting other armored formations. That was new until they, until Operation Barbarossa and the later stages of it. And I think James Lucas does a great job of kind of highlighting the different roles that armor evolved into in the conflict and the hardware and how it evolved into how it was used. In particular, I found his insights to kind of the, you know, tank destroyer role and the the squads that they would use to counter enemy armor formations really intriguing from an Axis perspective. And I won't say that's the entire focus of the book, but really that's what stood out to me and what I appreciated from reading it. My number one recommendation on the top three list here for World War II Eastern Front books is Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East by David Stahiel. And again, pronunciation apologies there on his last name. What I really liked about this work is that it's more of an access perspective, but it was really higher level. So it's around the planning for the operation it's what the leaders in the different military organizations across the axis were thinking, how they were interacting with each other, the very high-level strategic um, decision-making and considerations, and ultimately, as the title kind of alludes, you know, the flaws and misconceptions and a lot of their thinking, which there were many. But I, I think David does a great job highlighting those. That's not to say that uh, he will never go into more tactical examples of the conflict, for example, he'll sit there and he'll discuss, you know, the KV-1, uh, the Soviet heavy tank really surprised the Axis in the initial weeks of the invasion. And how did they then at a high level, strategic level, miscalculate that? For example, suggesting to use anti-tank guns that really were not plentiful in the formations and not focus air support where it was needed to counter uh, those armored formations the Soviets were in the very early stages really representing and the Axis were having difficulty with. So I think David's work is wonderful, gives a very high level, more strategic overview in my mind, well-written. And, and also, same with all three of these authors, but David and Chris Bellemi probably particularly, they really do a great job with their uh, research into the source material and the time investment to understand the situation. So can't recommend these three books enough if you're looking to learn a little bit more about World War II Eastern Theater.
So that wraps us up for next episode. We're going to be taking a look at the OCS series and doing more of a deep dive into the various games that exist in the catalog. Uh, what makes each unique? What is the subject matter of each? What are different elements that folks might find intriguing if they're trying to find a game to pick up to add to their collection or to dive into the collection? going to be doing a little bit of a high-level overview of the games in the series. With that, just want to say thank you so much for listening along uh, through this chronicling of my entry into the OCS series. If you've got any feedback or questions, please give me a shout. And just want to say have a great day and a happy 2023 to all of you. Bye now.